if I fail, I fail. You know, if something breaks or something doesn't work, that's on me. I see those number of deaths every day, and I take that personally. We have a life and death situation in our country, and they should not try to hide behind an excuse for why they did not take action, but it does admit that they did not take action. This is inconvenient from an economic and a personal standpoint, but we just have to do it. That is our major weapon against this virus right now. Hello and welcome to Trumpcast. I'm Virginia Heffernan. Hey, from my plague bunker to yours, I hope you guys are holding up. Not baking if you don't want to. You don't have to bake. I hope you're sleeping too much and calling it self-care. Maybe even establishing a late-life addiction to grand theft auto. And you can get treatment for that stuff later. A couple of days ago, I was in my bunker. Two days ago. I was in my bunker, of course. I wouldn't leave my bunker, don't worry. Kids in fake online school, my partner doing extremely productive things around the house with his sourdough starter and a drill. And I realized that as great as these three people are, I'm not stuck with just them. Okay, so I have shared custody of the kids with their dad and their stepmother who live a few blocks away. And they have another child together. And you see where I'm going? My kid's stepmother, who's roughly my age and completely interesting and amazing, is in my germ family. My microbe sphere, she's in my extended quarantine. And guess what? She and I could actually appall people and end up as one of those cautionary tales on CNN for people who disobey the quarantine if we like left our houses and ran toward each other on the block and gave each other big hugs and gross slobbery kisses and like sneezed in unison. Cuomo could put us on his briefings and say, you are all still too close. What is wrong with you? And we could become like a PSA meme and still not risk leaving our germ family. So I called Alana. She wasn't that excited about the big slobbery hug, but I asked her if she wanted to go on a not six foot walk where we could like touch each other's shoulders. And she was game. So we went out and wandered and spent a half an hour talking about how terrified plus fugue state we both are. And it felt both slightly quarantine truant And also very just good. Oh, and on that walk with Alana, who edits Tablet Magazine, she recommended a great guest for Trumpcast. My guest today, Carly Pildes, who's written a fantastic piece for Tablet about what happens when you're quarantined with your abuser. Carly is an activist and director of grassroots organizing at the Jewish Democratic Council of America, and she's a contributing editor at Tablet Magazine. Carly, welcome to Trumpcast. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so glad to get to talk to you about something that has almost, I think, just as the quarantine was happening, many of us started to panic that home is not a safe place for a lot of people. And, t- and you know, in the spirit of Trumpcast, we know that home is not a su- safe place for people who live and consort with the president. And so we have a top-down model of who not to be quarantined with. And you seem to have had the same train of thought and actually went out to sort out this question of domestic and intimate violence and abuse during the quarantine and what it might be like. And also you have some ideas of how to help. So tell me about your article. 
Sure. So I am a part of a couple sort of closed Jewish women's Facebook groups. A lot of them are sort of like how to push my career forward or dealing with sexism in the Jewish world. And people started posting, you know, call this number if you're in danger, call this number if you're home and being abused. We're ready to help you during this time of social distancing and quarantine. And I just thought like, what an impossible public health dilemma to deal with. When you're telling people you must go home, you know, don't go to work, don't bring your kids to school, don't see your, you know, friends and family, isolate for the public safety and for your own safety. And the sort of epidemiology side of it isn't considering the existing public health threat for women who are not safe in their homes. One in three women and one in 10 men are victims of domestic violence. And one in four women will be victims of severe violence by an intimate partner in their lifetime. So I started grappling just with the enormity of the problem and reaching out to people running these hotlines and saying, how does one even begin to grapple with a public health problem this complicated. When you're telling mm -hmm. people you must stay home and their home is the most dangerous place for them to be. Yeah. So I was speaking to the editor of Tablet, Alana Newhouse, your friend and mine, and she was saying that also it's young adults having to go home who might be, well, either in college or somewhere else. And yet another person in the Jewish community said that sometimes these people, LGBTQ people in particular, if they're going home to religious houses to parents to whom they're dead, you know, you're dead to me kind of thing, they're going back to a situation that is silent. Like they're moving around people who loathe them. There's a lot of joking now about, oh, it's so hard to be cooped up with my kids. But we're talking about extremely dangerous situations. Like you may be safer in a heavily sanitized women's shelter than being locked up with someone with a history of violence and abuse. And I know one thing universities have really grappled with is what do you say to a student who says, I simply cannot go home. You know, I'm LGBTQ yeah. and I simply have, there is no home to go to for a variety of reasons. You know, poverty among young people remains high. All right. So Carly, let me ask you something. I've been reading about women using code words. I know in France, there's something where they devise a code word to flag that they're being abused with pharmacists. So they go to pharmacies that they are allowed to frequent that, you know, they can manufacture reason to frequent and then give a code word. And I get the sense that code words are used elsewhere by people in abuse situations. What do you know about that? So I want to take a step back and talk a little bit about code words and what they're used for. They're used for a process called safety planning. So the women I spoke with, you know, they work to help women come up with safety plans. Now, you might think the safest thing to do is get out of the house, get away from the abuser. That's actually not true. In fact, the time a woman is in the most danger and the most threat of real physical harm or losing her life is the moment she tries to leave. So often they're working with women who are not ready to leave, don't have a plan to leave, are not capable of leaving for a variety of reasons. And they're trying to figure out, how can I get you through the week? How can I get you through the weekend? How can I get you to a place where someone can help you? So what people are devising is this code word system. You know, if I'm in imminent danger, I call you or I text you and I say bananas. 
And you know you either need to come over if I say bananas. And if I say apples, you know you need to call 911. I particularly spoke with women at Jakarta, which is a Jewish organization. There have been a couple big studies that say that Jewish women tend to stay longer in abusive marriages than their other American counterparts. So they, you know, often are seeing women that are really not ready to call the police, won't even give them their first names, but they walk through. Is there someone in your life you can trust that they know that if you give them this code word, they need to come over and they need to stop what they're doing and come over right away? Got it. And so you can you can somehow maybe you can text that to someone or got, or possibly place a phone call or Google Hangouts or that kind of thing. Or you can deliver this message at the pharmacy in America and with the organizations you've talked to. Does this happen more through our phones? Mostly through the phone and through the community level. So I'm not willing to tell my doctor. I'm not willing to tell my pharmacist, but I'm willing to tell my mother. So is there someone you trust that might be your mom, it might be your coworker, it might be your best friend? Someone knows that when they say this code word, they need to come over immediately or they need to call the police. Ideally, there's two different code words. What is interesting about this is immediately my response to that was, why would you call over some other woman if you're terrified of your husband And I don't want to be, you know, gender normative here, terrified of your wife, terrified of your partner, etc. You know, why would you want to bring someone else into that situation? What is interesting is that abusers don't want people to know they're abusing. They don't want people in their community to know this is happening. They don't want the neighborhood to know. They don't want coworkers to know. They certainly don't want religious leaders to know. So if the wife of your rabbi or a pastor comes knocking at the door... They're going to turn on a dime and the abuse is going to stop, at least for the day, for the hour. He he gets it together. Yes. They don't want anyone to know. So that can buy you some time. And de-escalate. The interesting thing about safety planning is it is not about a long-term sustainable solution. Or even getting you out the door, right? No. It's not about putting judgment on women that they need to leave. It's not about a long-term sustainable solution. It is about identifying what triggers abuse and de-escalating. It's about coping with an impossible situation on a day-to-day basis. And if you think about it from a public health perspective, it's harm reduction. Got it. It is maddening to think that even in non-quarantined times, you have to think of an abuser as like as insensate, irrational, you know, that there's nothing you can do except for try to mitigate the abuse and protect yourself and redirect because it's just a constant storm. You know, there's it, there's no person to person real loving negotiation possible, or at least not when the abuse is hot sounds like. Absolutely. And to be clear, if there are women who want to leave, many of these organizations are are standing there ready to help. You know, Jakarta again has legal services, has social workers, and they also have this emergency hotline. But when they call, when someone calls this hotline, first of all, they're usually not calling because they want to leave. They're calling because they're in danger. And they're not going to pressure a woman to leave. They will not call back and they will not get the help they need to mitigate the situation. You know, it is about trying to get someone through the period of time experiencing the smallest amount of abuse as possible. And if there is a moment when they want to leave, helping them create a plan to do so. But again, 
I said a couple times, why not, you know, when someone's on the phone, why not say, you know, just to play devil's advocate, why not say you're on the phone, you made the first step, we're going to come over and get you. Because you cannot do that unless you are ready to guarantee the safety of these people. And you cannot do that. The most risky moment is the moment they walk out the door. Right. Okay. Yeah. I heard Gloria Steinem say recently that part of the reason patriarchy in general, violent patriarchy is flaring up around the world is that women and gender nonconforming people seem on the brink of walking out the door, <laughs> you know, in, in a, in, that on that threshold, it becomes, you know, if the identity of the patriarch and the abuser is entirely predicated on his capacity to subjugate someone else or, you know, a whole other gender, then that's an ex- a huge existential identity threat to him that he may act, act on, even in a mass way. And that brings us to Donald Trump. So Trump certainly humiliates his wives with the very public adultery. We've seen Melania have to just like seemingly, you know, dig her fingernails into her hand during the Stormy Daniels thing when it was revealed that he was having an affair you know, while she was pregnant and then while she had a baby. Same thing happened with Marla Maples. And then, of course, Ivana Trump, his first wife, charged him with rape and described a very violent scene. She then retracted that claim. But I think we can imagine there are other stories not entirely verified of certain kinds of abuse of his children, including violent abuse. There's obviously the oversexualized relationship with Ivanka that in any other setting might be considered uh, emotionally, psychologically abusive. So we have in, you know, uh, this capricious tyrant in the in the White House who's supposedly our leader during this quarantine time. And he's not modeling for us. I don't even understand who in his quarantine consists of. It can't be good to have that voice in the ear of so many families. You know, I know I look to Andrew Cuomo and he models a family quarantine, what it's like, what you can do with your family, how you can continue to establish, he says, like spiritual connection, if you even if you don't have social spatial connection with people. We don't hear Trump saying anything like that. The sort of domestic image that we have from Donald Trump is one where I think most of us would feel tyrannized and subjugated. Do you think that affects things? Absolutely. A couple points. One, we are seeing, at least anecdotally, from reports of people who do this work regularly, an increase in lethality in abuse, which is really troubling. And I think a president sets a tone for a country in a lot of ways. We are not seeing someone who is, you know, talking about the steps he's taken to protect his own family. We're seeing someone who is not following basic protocol, even in his own press room, even in his own hearings. He's not standing six feet apart from people. And, you know, he certainly is not showing the country that he's deeply concerned about the most vulnerable, far from it. Really modeling, you know, we've gone from pro-life to it's acceptable that several hundred thousand Americans might die. It's a truly rudderless ship right now. And that's very frightening at a moment where Americans need to believe and be told that their government has a handle on this, that there's a plan, that it's being implemented. And we don't have that. It's a very dangerous situation. 
that volatility and capriciousness is also, it sounds like with women calling in to various domestic violence hotlines, that that capriciousness, I don't know what he's going to do, I don't know what's going to happen, that we also have all been subject to, have all been kind of stopped in our tracks by these daily, you know, now daily press conferences, prep rallies, whatever they are, where Trump sometimes changes his tone to be nice to us. You know, it's like, you know, an abuser has brought you flowers. And so for a day, he's going to leave you alone. And the next day, he's going to yell at a reporter. That unpredictableness makes things especially scary. Just the feeling that you don't know how to put a foot right with someone who has a lot of control over your life. So what are some of the things that are different in the calls this Jewish group is are getting that quarantine makes especially difficult? I mean, obviously, no one's leaving home for work and the kids aren't leaving for school. So those would seem to present challenges. What are some of the specific things that are happening under the quarantine in these domestic abuse situations? So far, the thing that I'm hearing is increased lethality. You know, these are pressure cooker situations. People are not able to go to synagogue. They're not able to be out in their community. You have the kids at home. And that's a part of why so much about this is about harm mitigation, creating safety plans. And helping women to game out. You're the expert in your abuser. Let's spend some time, not you being told that it's your fault, but gaming out what makes him the maddest. How can you avoid that conversation? You know, what strategies, even in your talking to him, can we use to help de-escalate the abuse? And then the code words are a last resort because people will not use them until it is a last resort. Now, when people use the code word to to get a sister or a friend or a, you know, a, someone they trust, maybe over to the house, you're then asking that person to break their quarantine. I just keep wondering what comes first here. Mostly, we've now been told that this quarantine comes above all. There's nothing that should take precedence over it. But that clearly can't be true. I mean, if you felt like you were at risk of being killed, it seems like you should run to the neighbor's house right? But we're under the spell of this other thing right now. And that that also makes it hard for people, domestic abuse victims who are gaming out what's going to happen to them in their house. They now have another factor. Yes, it, it absolutely is getting more difficult, particularly in places that really have serious stay-at-home orders. It is getting more and more difficult. I will say that the understanding, at least, that I have is that in order to stop the abuse, you don't necessarily need to be coming into the house and hanging out for two hours. It could be I knocked on the door, you opened the door, I waved, I left a package, I said, I'm leaving everyone in the neighborhood, packages of tea, just wanted to check up on you. And even that reality check that someone could knock on the door. That makes sense. What about people trying to protect their children, parents, mothers, fathers, trying to protect their children in situations of domestic abuse? How can they be empowered during the day? I mean, just my imagination like hits a wall because these situations are so tricky. Is there something like this code word method or at least having someone to strategize with about how, you know, in religious communities, Christian, Muslim, Jewish, there are often many children. You know, my kids are in Jewish day school. Many of their friends come from families of five children. And they, you know, that seems to present challenges to the parent that doesn't like being home with the kids all day. Yeah, I, I mean, I think it's enormously complicated, right? And so when we talk about strategizing and de-escalation, this might be the, when someone makes this call, it might be the only time they've ever had someone help them think it out strategically this way, as opposed to just 
it's my fault. It's my fault. It's the kid's fault. I have to protect them. But, you know, what can we, you know, avoid conversations about money or other potential triggers? And really, this might be the only time that women have sat down and had someone help them game that out with them as opposed to just being blamed. And again, this is about harm reduction. It's about mitigation and de-escalation. It's deeply unsatisfying. And most women don't call back. The woman I spoke to the other day said, no one calls back and says, like, guess what? I didn't get beaten up this weekend. So the women running these calls and doing the safety planning, it's enormously psychologically challenging for them. Jakarta, for example, has unlimited paid leave for their staff. They have mandatory leave and vacation time. So it's enormously psychologically challenging also for the people who are leading these calls. You know, you're gaming out these plans and you're hoping it works, but you usually don't get an answer to if it worked a lot. I imagine why they don't call back, because it sounds like it's such a last resort to involve the community and potentially destabilize the ego of the abuser that you are risking, you know, you feel you're risking making it worse. And in this way, it really does remind me of Trump, where Trump will be extremely insulting or cruel or sadistic to a reporter, to a rival. Um, And then when he's called on it, criticized for it, he turns that into another pretext for abuse. Yes, it's a... This sort of man is allergic to accountability, yes, but I think very right. focused on perception, wherein that's where the right person at the right time, reminding them that people are watching and reminding them that this reflects on them can yeah. be de-escalating. Yeah. Last question. Governor Cuomo has brought up many times that he thinks we are collectively in the midst of trauma right now. And that seeing this thing happen in slow motion from our own quarantines and knowing in some way that our little bodies and minds and hearts and in some cases lungs are overwhelmed with this situation and that it will affect us for so long to come that our lives may never be the same. All right. Knowing all that, what do you think our ways and victims of domestic abuse are, I, sh- I should have made this clear, but are almost exaggerated examples of that because their trauma, which was already there, present in their lives in difficult family situations is now being exacerbated and they have fears of this virus, commitments to staying home, economic fears, all those things. How do you see some of the counselors you've talked to, some of the models you've talked to about how to mitigate domestic abuse and maybe finally leave a situation like that, how might they help us going forward to address the trauma, to, in a way to help prevent the trauma so that we're not just in the midst of this slow-mo Greek tragedy that scars us all? All the psychologies, horses and all the psychologies, men must be able to come up with something that can soften the blow of all this on us and people in worse situations than we are. Look, I'm not a doctor and I'm not a psychiatrist. I'm a writer and an activist, but I have some thoughts. Okay. I mean, first, first of all, like acknowledging it's hard. There's a great New York Times article out today called It's Okay to Not Be Productive. Like this isn't working from home. This isn't what homeschooling is like for homeschoolers. This is an enormous global emergency that we have not experienced in our lifetime. This is your grandmother doing victory gardens in World War II. 
First, just acknowledging that. You don't need to write King Lear or come out ready for bikini season. You just need to live through it and try to help as many people get through it as you can. That's one. Uh, just acknowledging the enormity of what is happening and the fact that like you see people being like, if I don't come out of this totally ripped or if I don't come out of this able to bake a pie, all you have to do is come out of it. That's your job. <laughs> come out of it alive and, you know, make it through. That's your job and be responsible and help other people make it through. So I think that's one acknowledging the enormity of the trauma and checking in with people about how they're doing emotionally and psychologically and being honest about how you're doing. Look, this morning at 6 a.m., I called one of my best friends and said, I need a pep talk before I spend the day working from home with my toddler. I need a big phone call hug. Yeah. And say that to people because you do need it. And it's easy to get into the trap of other people are suffering more than me. I still have a job. I'm still pulling in money. Uh, I'm, I have a house and a yard. I shouldn't complain. Other people have it worse. And many people do have it worse. And some people have it better. But acknowledging the size of the trauma and then checking up on the people you love and being honest with them about how you're doing. And please also availing yourself of professional help. You don't have to leave the house to get it. You can do it via text. You can do it via phone. You know, take care of your mind as well as your body because this is not going away anytime soon. It is going to be a psychological marathon. That is beautiful. My shoulders relax when you said, just acknowledge the enormity of this. Even just saying, this is really hard. You know, it's just like when a friend says to you, you're not wrong. What you're going through is hard because just having the, I'm not doing this as well as other people. You know, I'm not doing my quarantine as well as other people. Oh, my God. Yeah, we're all quarantine competitive. I called one of my yes. friends and it was like, the other moms are better at, at quarantine schooling than me. And she was like, "This that's not even a thing. Yeah, that's not a thing. Exactly. It's time for screens and, you know, ice cream. And God bless anyone who thinks they're going to come out of this ripped. I don't even know what that would be like. <laughs> My guest today has been Carly Pildes. She's an activist and contributing editor at Tablet Magazine. Thank you so, so much for being here, giving us lots to think about. Thank you for having me. That's it for today's show. What'd you think? Say hey on Twitter. I'm at page 88. The show is at Real Trumpcast. And then go over to Slate.com slash Trumpcast Plus and become a Slate Plus member. We do have these episodes that are available only to Slate Plus members, like a recent one with Frank Figluzzi. I hope you didn't miss it. Today is your day. Plus members get all of Slate's podcasts, including that one, ad-free, for only $35 for the first year. And best of all, you'll be supporting our work. So go to Slate.com slash Trumpcast Plus. Our show today was produced by Melissa Kaplan with engineering help from Richard Stanislaw. I'm Virginia Heffernan. Thanks for listening to Trumpcast. <laughs>